clear the runway for the ace of the airways. Flying in a cargo hold filled with great music and the best in locally produced community programs. Land your dial at KAADLP 103.5 FM Sonora and streaming at KAAD-LP.org. It's that time again. It's Thursday. Yes, and I want to invite everyone listening as we explore another <laughs> one of life's little mysteries. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's Enigma Hour. It's, it's Thursday, 10 p.m. to midnight. We stay up late just to do this. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the nighttime. Is the right time. The nighttime is the right time. Especially for our topic. Yes, and, and tonight we have the master of the night. Dr. Alan Greenfield is going to be on in just a second. 
and I'm actually really excited about it. Uh, the last time uh, he was on, and I said, Olaf, I, I don't even know what questions to ask. I, I, I don't know anything <laughs> about the topic. And compliments to someone that really understands their topic. Yes. Uh, they can explain it in plain language that everyone could, can understand. And, and someday we'll find that guess. It's definitely not Alan. Uh, but what I found is I not only understood the topic, but I could add to it. Yes, because, because go ahead. it was part of a part of my life experience. It's because you really are a fortune. You, you, for decades, you have denied the amount of weird S word, FCC insert F S word that you've done. I mean, you've done these things. You've experienced these things, but you're. You didn't put them in that context. No. I'm unlocking the true weirdo with That's right. I'm coming out of the closet. <laughs> Dave is out of the closet. Wow. He's actually a weirdo. <laughs> <clears throat> but yes, yeah, so we're, we're here every Thursday, 10 p.m. to midnight. We're on uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, iHeartMedia. I don't know. The list goes on and on. People actually do wherever listen. you get your uh, your favorite podcast. No, wherever finer podcasts are listened okay, to. Okay, that, that. we gotta we gotta prop ourselves up here, Dave. I mean, you know, we we do broadcast from a little tiny radio station in the middle of nowhere, down in a basement, in a basement that is very bunkerish. I'm gonna be honest with you. I, this is the place I'd want to be during the zombie apocalypse. Yeah. For reals. When you don't care if the alarm goes off, just open the door. I mean, you can really barricade yourself in here. Well, it's, it's naturally barricadable. Uh, I don't know if any uh, of you old-timers out there that remember uh, um, Jazzbo and his Purple Grotto. That I was have three. no idea what you're uh, talking that's about. That's right. Oh, well, Alan is nodding his head. He's like, yes, yes, I remember this. Okay, and it was three stories down. And that's exactly what we have here. I don't know. You know, I, I'm i going to be honest with you. It has always been my dream to have two things. I realized the second thing later, but I've always wanted a mystery shack. I love mystery. I visit them wherever I go. I've always wanted a mystery shack, and I realized I wanted, like, a metaphysical, like, how do I explain it? Like a metaphysical Disneyland in my backyard. Well, you but have this it. is as close as I'm going to get to yeah. the, the mystery show. Follow me, County. Yeah. Well, I mean, as we've discovered. Oh, by the way, I went rock hu- rock hunting. Yes. I found more mariposa. Okay. And I I now have a tile saw, so I can cut it. All right. I picked up a tile saw. All right. Well, we should probably get Alan on. We do have a guest tonight. Let's see if this works. Alan, can you hear me? Santa Lucia. Should okay. I get out of the shower now? Oh, oh. hi. And Let you know me what's, just put something on. You know what's funny is that right, right as he comes on, that's when the thunder strike happens. Right, uh, that, that's great. I put I've on some that. background music. As soon as the thunder came out, there he uh, was. So we caught him singing in the shower. Huh? Yes, apparently. Okay. I'm sinking in the rain. 
Just singing in the rain. <laughs> so how do I introduce what a glorious <laughs> Oh, that's over the F So So this beautiful opera singer, you see this movie, but he could only sing while he was in a shower. So they bring a shower out on stage. <laughs> <laughs> so well, that's he how goes, I feel Who sometimes. is that? Which opera singer? Um, I don't remember. It was a Woody old Woody Allen movie. Oh yeah, I got I got that. Uh, what's up, Tiger Lily? Maybe. Beyond beyond being a master magician, Alan is quite the the movie movie nut. Okay. Well, I don't know. I mean, after that, I don't know how to introduce him. Um, Alan, Doctor Alan Greenfield, uh, master of the occult, master of magic, master of the fortean, and a damn fine author. And and quite the singer, as we've we've suddenly found out. <laughs> I should have brought my mandolin. You, you have a mandolin for real? <laughs> well to play Santa Lucia. <laughs> <laughs> Do you seriously have a mandolin? I think in my basement. Yeah, what? I have I have a collection. What is it in your basement, Dave? Uh, I don't know. Uh, oh yeah, you saw my collection. Yeah. I went through the various stages of magic. Yeah. It was oh, like I know. Uh, from clown magic to stage magic to, I, I guess, magic with a K. Magic with a K. I don't know. Do- Dr. Greenfield, how do we refer to that as magic with a K? Uh, if you have all that stuff hidden in your basement and you have a code word for getting in, open, says me. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. And it opens, then that's definitely some kind of magic. Now, if you have a secret opening thing, like a garage door thing, that's techno magic. How's that for a segue? Okay, yeah, that, I hear that's our topic. Yeah, so tonight, you know, we're having Alan on, the second time Alan's come on. But, you know, Alan is, Alan is fascinating to talk to. You just, you are, you're just fascinating. So I thought, you know, <clears throat> I have a little secret project here with Alan that, that I'm working on. And uh, not ready to expose too much about it, but I thought, you know, it involves technomancy. And I thought, you know, not a lot of people talk about technomancy. Well, I've realized that because until I met you, I'd never heard the term. So I'll be learning right along with everyone else. So so I thought, you know, because not a lot of people talk about technomancy and in the occult world and the magic world, you know, it, it falls in and out of favor. But I thought, you know, let's have Alan on and we can have a, a raging conversation about technomancy. Okay. So, Alan, so how do you define technomancy? Well, it's related to another term, uh, technomagic, which is in the broad sense the use of technology to enhance one's magical abilities. It uh, really refers, I think that that term comes directly from uh, sort of a, somebody will hate a Star Trek lookalike called Babylon 5. Uh, and there was a class of people called technomages because they did what appeared to be magic with a K, but actually had these implants. Sounds like Elon Musk's project yeah. this week. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, Gone to human trials. To, yeah, well, yeah. 
we'll all be there sooner. Yeah, we'll be living in a William Gibson novel. Yeah, I'll get some uh, yeah. Um, but uh, technomancy is basically the application of technology to magic in general and predictive magic in particular. It's only oh three or four thousand years old if you count the creation of the binary system, the Yi Jing, which I use. And interestingly enough, although it was invented, well, nobody knows exactly when, but in ancient China, uh, at least 3,000 years ago, um, when accessible computer technology came along, it, ad it adapted very readily to computer technology. Why, you say? You didn't say, but... Well, I was going it, ad it adapted because 3,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, 10 years ago, it was a binary way of divination. And what kind of computer technology do we have currently? Barring, right. you know, it's binary zeros and ones. It's all we're dealing with, and that's all you deal with in uh, the uh, Yi Ching. The difference being that there are a limited number of generally accepted interpretations in the Yi Ching, whereas the number of zeros and ones, like any other number, is infinite. Well, you know, the, fir the first time I ever actually heard about technomancy and technomages was actually reading uh, William Gibson and the, the whole cyberpunk thing, because within yeah. cyberpunk... There are techno-mages. And it always fascinated me. Um, the only book of his I've read is Neuromancy, which was his first, and also right. kind of predicted where we are now. <laughs> Very closely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, We're on the verge. And uh, I, I think that, and it's it had its influence in cinema. I mean, while I was reading it, it occurred to me, hey, this is sort of, well, these are not great movies, but Lawnmower Man, you right. know, has this guy's digitized. And uh, what was the other one? A Tron. Yeah, a Tron. The original Tron. Um, so those are really anticipating what you can do in the way of uh, essentially becoming cybernetic humans, cyborgs. Well, and one of the things that, that fascinated me as I started to think about technomancy a few years ago, I really started to to think about it. And I I think it really came to me in building the, you know, and adapting the, the code that does the secret cipher online. Because you're taking a you know, the secret cipher of the euphonauts, you're you're taking this this system that Crowley was originally dictated and then the guy in England had figured out Jim Leeds. Yeah, Jim, Jim Leeds. And he had figured out the system of how it works, the ALW cipher. <clears throat> and now you're using because it's all mathematics, you're now using, you know, code 
to do the mathematics to generate the cipher output. And what dawned on me is that the act of hitting submit is triggering the magical working. And it really came to fruition in my mind, I think, when I watched Hellier and I realized that Hellier, the show, season one and season two, and maybe season three if there's ever one, is in and of itself a working, but it is a working that is using the audience intrinsically as part of the working, which in and of itself is fundamentally technomancy. Yeah, and also there are applying synchronicity, which they do at every step of their journey, if you will, there are a series of binary choices. Right. You can go with your original uh, intent or goal, finding goblins or finding hidden treasure or whatever, or you can follow the synchronicities and go on path number one instead of path zero or one and two or however you want to, you know. Right. Well, I think it, it becomes zero and one, then one and two, then two and three, and, you know, it's a chain. But it's still, whenever you come to another synchronicity, you can go one of two ways, or not go at all, which is another matter. They forge on, and I sort of favor the people who, even through trials and tribulations, amen, say amen. 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 And Go on with the work, regardless of the sinister forces of the Black Lodge. Plug, plug, plug. <laughs> well, and, and one of the other things that dawned on me the other day, actually, as I was preparing to do the show, is that, you know, I, I adapted the Gansfeld system to, to enter into a trance state and to enter ether space to communicate. In my case, pictographically. But the way that I get there is that I play white noise, per the Gansfeld, I play white noise into headphones. And that in and of itself is I'm using a technical device to trigger the event. My will is creating the event but my will is aided by a technical device, which is intrinsically technomancy. Or as you got me, a God helmet. Or, yes, yes, a God or, helmet. Or uh, something I've experimented with for years and years and years, which is uh, the kind of biometric feedback that you can get with certain devices and also... Uh, colors and lights in certain frequencies now available for free for nothing on the, on YouTube, really, for, for almost anything that ails you. <laughs> no guarantees. But uh, uh, those are all things that uh, interlace between uh, technology and magic. Now, some may say if it's technological magic, it's not magic, it's technology. But I think that's a false dichotomy. And uh, 
In fact, uh, we can go back to Arthur Clarke's famous dictum, a truly advanced technology would be indistinguishable from magic. And if you don't know what that means, imagine somebody walking in from the jungle a thousand years ago, finding a light switch and turning it on. Is that magic or is that technology? Well, it's and, both. and we have a, we have a, a modern view of that because of the cargo cults. The cargo cults actually validate that every that everything that Clark said about that is true. Because yeah, yeah. And, well, I don't know. Maybe you ought to explain that because cargo cults as a pop item, uh, I think it started sort of when uh, the movie Mondo Kane came out. Yeah, and uh, that's a long ago for the for the younger <laughs> folks that are looking at their phones. That's true. Even so, now, even at this moment. So the the notion behind the Kerr cult, it's also the John Frum cult. But basically, in World War II, because of the rapid expansion of the Japanese Empire, we had to fight island to island. And in order to do this logistically, the Seabees, an engineering unit within the U.S. Navy predominantly, would come to an island <clears throat> and these could be very small islands, but they had been designated as strategically significant. So the CBs would build an airfield. And as fast as they could build the airfield, suddenly transports and bombers and fighters would start landing at the airfield and start to carry out operations against these forward Japanese bases. Well, the islanders <clears throat> that were on the islands as they were occupied by the CBs they didn't really understand what they were seeing because they had never seen airplanes or jeeps or you know people other than themselves and they they kind of had an assumption that because the airplane came out of the sky that the gods were coming down to earth and that those soldiers represented the gods and one of them was supposedly called John Frum and <clears throat> sorry I have a dry throat tonight and they would interact with the with the indigenous population and they would give them Hershey bars and sodas and whatever else. And these were completely alien to the people that lived there. So when they decided to leave and go to the next island, the islanders were still there, but the gods had left. So they would they would go to the airfields, they'd rebuild the airfields using their own technology, they would build fake airplanes. They would have a guy stand up in the control tower screaming, you know, take off, take off. And then they would lift up an effigy of an airplane and run down the runway and then throw it into the ocean. So I uh, heard yes. a translation of a native person that was uh, uh, remembered the old days from World War II. And it was just a fascinating thing. He actually helped build the airfield. There you go. And uh, they gave him a cap to wear. Right. You know, and he said the one thing is that he felt an equal to everyone. That's the thing he kept stressing that I was just part of them. You know, um, uh, and he was fascinated with all the different colors of people. Yeah, because uh, they they that's a truly alien concept because they 
they're very close. Some of these societies were very closed off, and they'd never seen anything anybody but themselves. So, but oh. John from America yes, John. treated those native people right, or according oh, yeah. to this translation, according of the, to the history, yeah. and he liked the canned meat the best. <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't said. like spam? <laughs> yeah. well, maybe the way Alan. The unfolded, and I should say that there were predecessor cults that involved ships because right. they were equally unfathomable. They would carry their cargo and leave cargo uh, or, you know, whatever they had abandoned, but to the local population, other than the few that worked with them, the future priesthood, uh, as, as I think of them. Uh, you get further into the outback on most of these islands of Borneo, uh, New Guinea prominently. My, uh, my Uncle Bernie was an officer in the Pacific. Uh, he headed an uh, anti-aircraft battery on New Britain, which is one of the islands that we're talking about. Right. He was also a photographer, and he took a lot of pictures of the locals. And we are talking about primeval people, not in any way to put them down. These are... Uh, as primitive as we imagine our most remote ancestors are, but because they live in jungles, really, jungles that were pretty much impenetrable to the Marines and to the Japanese. It was a very, very difficult situation to get through that. Um, these stories would go out to, they're still finding groups of, of local people who have no contact with the outside world. Right. But the mythos, the meme, travels inland, so to speak. And when these bases, whether involving planes or whether involving ships, were abandoned, anything they left, uh, the only word they had for it was cargo. Right. And they thought, if we build, they will come uh, and bring more cargo. So... I believe, I may be wrong, but I believe there are still cargo cults. There are. Because there are still, uh, I hesitate to use the word primitive, let's say primeval people who have very little contact with the outside world, if any, and uh, who consider that uh, the gods once visited and bestowed cargo on them passed down from generation to generation. Maybe because nobody else has ever given a tinker's damn about that particular island. So. But I, I think what it... I think in in thinking about it before we, you know, we did the show tonight, I, what dawned on me is that, you know, within the magical world, there's all kinds of different magic. There's ceremonial chaos, light, dark, left, right... And, you know, there's all these different kinds. But I think that the technomancy gets a bad rap. Almost like you're cheating. But at the same time, if you really sit down and think about it, you know, technomancy at some level has infiltrated all modern magic. At some, We're some doing degree. it right now. We are. At this very moment, we're communicating with each other and with uh, whatever portion of the public 
millions, I assume, <laughs> of are listening, watching, thinking, telepathically tuning in. The guys in St. Petersburg who are eavesdropping, all of that is technologically linked. But what we're talking about is magical theory and magical practice. So is there a difference between that and what a traditional ceremonial magician is doing uh, when they uh, engage in an act of uh, telepathic contact or astral projection or uh, the principal things of formal magic or invocation evocation? Uh, are they doing something fundamentally different than turning on that light switch? I don't think so. I think that it's just a more advanced technology, but also a more advanced understanding of the nature of reality. So what do you think the outward limit of technomancy is? I mean, obviously it's limited by the technology we have, but as you know, one of the things that I was pondering the other day is that, you know, we, we as a society, we're on the verge of quantum computing, right? And at that level, if I take a quantum computer, which I can now, I can rent time on a quantum computer and I'm actually contemplating doing this. But if I take time on a quantum computer and I generate a sigil on the quantum computer, I'm accelerating the power and, and multiplying, infinitely multiplying the power of the sigil by using quantum technology and quantum mathematics to, to create it. It becomes almost a hyper sigil. Innately. Oh, it becomes a hyper sigil. Yeah. Uh, in fact, the groundwork on that was done by the person who did the original computer program, Tim Coutte, on Lexicon, which unfortunately is, I have one person as a copy who's trying to get it transferred from floppy disk to something <laughs> that'll play now. Yes, um, I want a copy. <laughs> well, well, he still has a floppy disk machine, but mm. that's sort of like, you know, he can copy it. I mean, it's probably, a, I don't know, uh, my first real computer was an IBM XT and it had two slots so you could copy one disk to the other. Oh, if, I have DOS and, and a floppy disk drive. Well, <laughs> he's got the disk though and he's got his people to, uh, so maybe I'll put into him. But the, po the point is that one of the things about Lexicon that doesn't exist in any of the programs that we use now in order to decode the cipher and, in your case, communicate with the secret chiefs using the cipher, which I think right. is uh, uh, unique to you. Each generation has their own take on these things. But um, uh, was the STAR 26 module? And I don't know if I can adequately describe it. I had it. Uh, back then, and I would, <clears throat> as my computers upgraded before they got beyond the floppy disks uh, stage, but were faster than they were, let's say, in the early 1980s, 
I would just run the program and let it generate as many stars as it could. Uh, we were talking about that just a day or two ago offline. Um, <clears throat> and sure enough, every magical sigil possible is generated at such a speed that it's uh, probably impossible to keep up with it. If you slow it down, it doesn't have the same effect. But you basically are dealing with uh, sigil ma hyper sigil magic. And this was <clears throat> circa 1988, 89, somewhere right. in there. And uh, that presage, is that the right word? I have no idea. Presage. Venice, Villeneuve. Presage. See, I speak French. <laughs> Yeah, I, I started taking a little French, you know, you know. Big, big pardon? Yeah, I, I, I started taking a little French. I, I know, know a few words, you know, faux pas. That means. <laughs> oh, I know faux pas. Oh, that means. I have that means I'm good that, at it. That means step, stepfather, right? No. <laughs> good one, Dave. Master the bad be joke. Patty DeFoy. Aww. which <laughs> is definitely not vegan. I, now, am, so. I think, Dave, you had a question. <laughs> no, I'm just saying uh, it seems like it's just other tools that you use yeah. to be able to manifest your intention, and then some of the tools, more modern tools, helps you amplify that. That's it. Now, um, like... Uh, both you guys are authors. Well, actually, I am too. And you use the printing press. That's the technology that you use. And you right. reach more, um, uh, you're able to manifest it in a larger way because it's disseminated. Well, and, and that's now, I'm a mixed media guy. I use tones. Uh, um, and that's voice. magic too. That is magic. Yeah. But we're doing... You're exactly is, right, yeah, the good yeah. doctor. Uh, uh, we're doing magic right now. I think the, the thing that I'm trying to get at, though, is that it, if I use a high speed... So I actually... One of the things that I'm messing around with is to take a sigil, just to randomly generate... You know, do it properly, right? It has a meaning and yada, yada. But to actually map that sigil in three dimensions... Because never before has a sigil been mapped in three dimensions. It's always a two-dimensional drawing. So what does that sigil look like in three dimensions? Because if you can render a sigil in three dimensions, not only is it a hyper-sigil, but it has the capability to function in three dimensions. And because it can function in three dimensions, it might be able to function in the fourth dimension. All right. <laughs> to infinity and beyond. Well, that's but that's it. If if you, that's why I was asking. If I took the the star, what did you call it? The star twenty six. Module. Module. It's part of lexicon, but it's a module that can be added or that could be added back when it existed. So, so if I took the star twenty six module, which generates patterns based on the ALW cipher, and I put it on a quantum computer that is doing quantum mathematics at a quantum level, I have now 
quantum enabled the generation of, of random sigils and every one of them is infinitely hyperfied. Is that accurate? Yeah. Well, okay. You're, you're able to do your magic at a but, higher level but, because of the but, tool that you But the you thing use. about that, and Alan, correct me if I'm wrong, but the thing about that is that if I can do this on a quantum computer of any kind, I just need one quantum chip to make this happen, right? If I do that, it becomes the most powerful magic ever devised by humanity because nobody's ever done it. Nobody knows what the ramifications are. Yeah, the, that's worth thinking about. Actually. Yes, it, have it's I done it? Like exploring subatomic particles with particle accelerators that are well, bigger and bigger and bigger. And, 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 and there is an argument that that the Mandela effect was caused by an experiment at at Fermi sir? Lab. No, it was Fermi Lab actually in Chicago. Oh well, very possible. Yeah, they, they actually caused caused a, some kind of a shift in in reality. <laughs> That's why I when I take the Mandela effect questionnaire, I pass it because I'm a kid of the '80s. So all that stuff, the Bernstein Bears and all that, I remember all of it, but nobody else does. Somebody born five years after me has no idea what that stuff was. But but isn't that true though? I mean, you infinitely quantify the the sigil every time. Uh, yeah, uh, but each one has its own properties. Right. You are freezing certain properties in a living organism, essentially. And the interesting thing is, I think everything at the quantum level is alive. Right. In the same sense that we're alive. Actually, we we exist at the quantum level. Uh, and according to some, like, uh, I guess, Rupert Sheldrake and uh, quite a few people who are biologists and physicists, I guess they're quantum physicists and quantum biologists, um, we're radio receivers, not transmitters. So essentially our brain is us tuning in to the infinite self. I don't want to get too you know, lost in the weeds here, but... Uh, no, but it's important. I think... Uh, I remember a few years ago, I uh, was talking to my son, Randall. He was still living at home at that time, and we were talking about quantum computing, and I said, well, when you get to quantum computing as a not an experimental system, but something that is practical and readily available and apply uh, artificial intelligence, it immediately becomes sentient in the same sense that we're sentient because it is like the Fibonacci sequence, like spiral galaxies, the whole chaos theory notion that the universe is generated in a certain sense, then you've got a machine that's no longer a machine. It's a living, sentient organism. And uh, that's something that not only is science and techno-magic, it's also something that scientific ethicists need to consider 
long and hard because it may be something that once started can't switch off I or ethically shouldn't switch off. I remember, I'm reminded of Metropolis where the mad scientist gives up his hand to create this robot um, uh, to actually hoodwink the uh, uh, and seduce the uh, public. It's, uh, it was definitely dark magic. But, uh, well, the whole thing with Metropolis is this uh, marriage of technology and magic. The city above, what is called in the book, the capitalist city term, meant something a little different back then. It meant exploitation class of... Uh, is that term they use in Russia for the princelings of the Russian Empire? Come on. Bourgeoisie. <laughs> no, no. That's from the Soviet era. Yeah. They, don't, they don't do that anymore. <laughs> I grew they, up in the Soviet era, man. <laughs> yeah, well, so did I, but, uh, well, sort of. But uh, uh, oligarchy. Okay. So the city above is an oligarchy. The city below is just toiling, workers toiling, but there's a mad scientist who is sort of a scientist, 1920s version, and also, I should say, Weimar Republic, uh, German Expressionism. Uh, and it's a beautiful film. That'll live yeah, forever. It's a, it's a great it, film. And, and the uh, film itself is an act of magic. It is. Because it oh, influences well, yeah. the people that uh, experience it. So you're passing your mm -hmm. uh, vision uh, manifestation into the other person to broaden them. So good stuff. Go, was, go on. It was clear that there was uh, seen to be, at least by the uh, filmmakers of that era, not just Metropolis, but uh, the Golem and... Uh, Nasratu, and they were, had one foot in the technology of the time, the most advanced. I mean, they were far ahead of uh, American cinema, which was still C.B. DeMille and uh, uh, Birth of a Nation. And it was, it was basically very conventional in its stuff. German cinema in the 1920s was wildly experimental. And, of course, uh, occult stuff was simply part of the German package in those days. Unfortunately, that was all brought to a close by our friends, the Nazis, who proceeded to uh, either exile or kill or imprison all of those people and because those were those are the true magicians that influence that can influence others with their vision and uh, that those early German films were very transformative it was true art and uh, they just great and that was part of their culture anyway because they used to have these stage presentations that were kind of you know, occult, and everybody flocked to them. Mm -hmm. They'd pay a dime or whatever to go in and see these things, and uh, they're chopping each other's heads off and stuff. But people like those little dinner things. 
and the way they would actually paint the shadow, the filmmaking, where they directed that camera was just amazing stuff. And those are true arts of magic. And that, to me, that would be uh, techno uh, magic because they're using that tool. Uh, I mean, I get it. You throw the I Ching coins and it's either a straight line or a broken line. It's a binary thing and it goes to basic, if not go to. Uh, uh, and then on from there. But any advance in technology that you can use to help uh, manifest more greatly your intention um, would be use of techno magic. But is it a good use of techno magic? Well, uh, see, the thing is, is uh, I don't want to shove my ideas onto everybody. So what I try to do is inspire and stimulate people uh, so they can spread their own angelic wings of beauty. That was pretty good, Dave. <laughs> no, but Alan, you know, it, it begs the question. You know, I was listening to you guys talk, and I looked it up, and there, you know, there are fairly inexpensive, if not free, ways to actually access quantum quantum computing. So if I, let's say that I understand the basic concept behind the star 26 module, right? And so I code, I code an application that does, that does the star 26, you know, it creates, it takes the ALW model and it creates as many star patterns as it can, as fast as it can. And so on a quantum computer that should take all of about probably 20 seconds. During that 20 seconds, what's the ramification of me actually doing that? Theoretically. There's no way to know until you do it, which is why you ought to think long and hard. Right, but I'm asking. the secret sheets because maybe it would create another intelligent life form that maybe doesn't want to be switched off. Right. And we would be sharing the planet with something far in advance of us. Well, and, and that's, that's also uh, and the argument. maybe it would, it would cure cancer. I mean, you can't know about pretty much any technology until it is actualized. When? Look at the internet. You know, I can see uh, the Black Lodge and I can see the, the uh, secret chiefs at work. In And there's what we do and there's what TikTok is doing to civilization. Yes. And that those is are a, both part of the same universe. That's right. One is light, one is very, very, very dark. Very dark. So you don't want to be creating no uh, golems or uh, homunculuses. Topa. Well, and that's <laughs> the, the message of the whole golem story, going back uh, to to the plays that, that the Yiddish plays of the late nineteenth, early twentieth century, is I guess it's the same message as uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. It it was. It truly was. You know, you create something with magic that is essentially a robot, and you create it for the best reasons possible. I've even been to the grave of the uh, uh, Holy Ari, uh, the rabbi of Prague, who supposedly in the 1600s created a golem, but he eventually, as in the silent film, The Golem, uh, which is from that same 
category of German cinema of the 1920s. That's and right. A, a much more recent film uh, that has a different take, but there are you know, more than one Golo. I've got one right here that I bought in Prague. Stay. Stay, boy. <laughs> uh, but if it, if it turns on you, it's not as easy to get rid of it as it is. Well, you take out the first letter on his forehead and it becomes death, right? And then yeah. he dissolves. But you have to get it. Yeah, you have to approach it. You have to rub it out. It but, might rub you out first. Boy, that's a Doctor Who situation but, but there. But here's, here's the problem, <coughs> right? The, 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 the things, this is, this is why it becomes really interesting really fast. The, the method by which you would create a golem or a tulpa is innately like any ceremonial magic. At some level, it's mathematical. And so just like game theory, if you can reinterpret interpret the method to create a golem mathematically, and this is what Nash won the Nobel Prize for in economics, is he took a poker game and, ma and made it a mathematical model. If you could take the creation the steps to create a golem and make it mathematical and you deploy it and you run it in a quantum environment, right? The golem, it will generate a golem, but it will, it may not generate a physical golem. It would generate a digital golem that at some level has access to technology innately and becomes the ghost in the wire but if I create a digital golem, how do I remove the first letter off of its forehead to change the meaning to death and to destroy it? Yeah, but it how would you destroy a digital golem? They, the thing doesn't have to have feats of clay. Um, but up until if, now, it has. Well, not actually, because if uh, you can create like these spiritual... But that's a tulpa. The tulpa is different. Um, that's a tulpa. Things right? that aren't uh, t uh, tangible necessarily, yeah, but, but are there and No, influence. a golem is a literal, literal man, but a tulpa is a thought form. Yes. And the same problem with a tulpa. How would you destroy it? Well, a tulpa is Oh, probably, you don't have to. No, it's a task-oriented. It's task-oriented. It's task-oriented, and once it has been created, it has a, it's sort of like the replicants in right. uh, Blade Runner. In Blade Runner. Uh, or for that matter, in New Android Stream Electric from <laughs> yes. Blade Runner was right. It's uh, they're time limited. But if you, but Alan, if you create a digital golem, how do you stop it? Mid task. Well, if you create it, you maybe create a, a kill as switch. part of it a kill switch. Yeah. yeah. I but, mean, which you know, would symbolically many, many years ago, uh, he's very interested in robots, a little bit too interested, I think. <laughs> yeah. It bordered on, you know. Now, uh, who doesn't love Robbie? Well, Robbie <laughs> was a creation of beings who destroyed their entire civilization in a single night. <laughs> they tr yeah, because they tried to extract <laughs> right, their id. Right. They made the id monster. <laughs> the we id discussed monster this. Is there in everything, and I just uh, <coughs> the basis of Black Lodge is 
monsters, Jim, monsters <laughs> from the id, to quote exactly the line from the movie, the dying line of the doctor. Yeah. Took the brain boost, which I have not mm. taken. Yeah, don't, don't take the brain booster. No, no, no. But no, it's, no. it's a problem. Because oh, I'm yeah. not the it only is person. Case. It, it certainly was. Well, I'm, not, when, I'm not the only person who thought of this. When formulated general relativity, was it at that moment that he decided, as he told Roosevelt much later under very different circumstances, we can build an atomic bomb? Well, and it, and it, goes, it goes back to Oppenheimer. I am death destroyer of worlds. Well, that was because he was seeing death yes. uh, in, uh, in the first explosion in, what was it, in Alamogordo? Yeah. So, but you realize all these things are actually the same story being retold? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, it is. But, you know, it's one of the, one of the problems with technomancy. You know, it, I'm I'm doing something with Alan that's very positive, and I, I think it's going to have a very interesting result, right? It's it's to take something that that people quote have quoted ten thousand times since the fifteenth century, and to reinterpret it using technomancy, because it changes the meanings. These meanings, and the argument is, is that these meanings of these things that are being translated. They have gotten into our psyche, but what if there's a different translation? Both of them are, are technically correct, but what if the machine-generated version of it... Is the evil twin? No, maybe it's more true. <laughs> or maybe it's more true. Because, more it's, because it's, it's detached from the fallacies of, of human <laughs> thought. Like It doesn't have, it doesn't have the, the essential bias that we all have. But one of the things that dawned on me, Alan, is that if you do, like if you create a golem using hyper, hyper magic, using quantum computing, you're not going to create a clay man. You're going to create a digified clay man. And this goes back to the discussion that we've had for years about the Babylon working. You know, it's, yeah. a, it's a portal that he never closed. He never bothered to close it. And it's the same time when the UFO started showing up and the Mothman and Bigfoot's different, but, you know, Mothman and UFOs, there was an increase in hauntings, poltergeist, blind, blind frog ranch, skinwalker ranch, pigs flying through the air. I mean, it's, it all started... Dogs and cats making it in the streets. <laughs> right. It all started when he did the Babylon working. Uh, well, it didn't start. It restarted. Well, it restarted. You have periods in history where that happens, but he, uh, uh, Parsons was not the first person to do a, a rather dark magical ritual. No. but And uh, I imagine he was not the first person who forgot to close it down at the end. Right. Uh, if indeed he didn't close it down at the end. All that we can know is what is available to us. I mean, there is some kind of trail with uh, his uh, acolyte, Arthur, yes. uh, person, and the other guy, the other guy. Who went on to found a religion which has a habit of erasing personal history 
at its convenience, which is a pretty good argument against doing anything with this guy, let alone uh, finding your ideal woman. Right. But, but I mean, again, if our you, gender of your choice. If you could, if you he, could. He didn't choose the gender, just the record. He was uh, omnivorous in that respect. Oh, okay. But, but again, if you're going to do sigil magic or Goetia or anything like that, you know, this becomes a very, because you're hyper, you're hyper modeling this thing. It, it exponentially increases the power. Well, that's it. You use technology to amplify yeah, but have we come your to manifestation. A, right, but have we come to a point where the, the results of that manifestation are truly, truly dangerous? Yeah, it depends on. I mean, uh, it's it's the it's like what Alan, you let Alan, loose. You you said it. You know, it creates a series of binary options. In this case, it's a very binary option. I can create well, a then sigil. Choose wisely. Well, of, of course, <laughs> but I could I could create a sigil very easily to run in a quantum state that says spread love all around, or I could create a sigil that spreads says spread darkness all around. Or you could create something that says spread lightness all around, but just the fact that you were creating it, there was that flaw in you, and it transferred off into it. Well, that's about will and intent. And you know, the famous thing about uh, the genie comes out of the bottle, and right. says, I get three wishes, and the third uh, or the second wish is, I wish for world peace. Uh, uh, Le Guin deals with that in the left hand of darkness, or which one, which of her books was it? Anyway, <laughs> it creates a plague and it kills off the bulk of humanity. And world peace was that there weren't any people around to fight one another anymore. But right. that's not what was intended. Right. So and really then have to formulate with any kind of magic or any kind of science, what your intent is. I feel like that in uh, the summer of 1945, there was one of those great binary choices. And the choice that was made, I understand fully. You probably understand it better than me because your grandpa was... Uh, in uh, Tokyo, POW camp in Japan. In Tokyo, yeah. Apparently, with with orders uh, to the very obedient uh, Japanese troops that the first Americans that come ashore liquidate the prisoners, which, yeah. uh, from a purely military point of view, makes sense. But it's wholly rational. Yeah. Well, that was the nature of Shinto in those days. But um, once the decision was made to have that as a weapon, we went through a period of history where the likelihood was, and plenty of thinkers, including a lot of authors, expected it, and for that matter, popularizers of science fiction uh, no, notably Roger Corman, 
the number of end-of-the-world scenarios yeah. out of nuclear disaster. And for a couple of generations, it was just accepted. Yeah. We, then, yeah. in 1990, 91, 92, with the collapse of one of the two, then two, nuclear superpowers, there was an opportunity to put the genie more or less back in the bottle without any war. That is, you could have during the Yeltsin regime. Well, actually, Gorbachev tried. It was was Gorbachev's intention. Yeah, Um, well, Gorbachev was on shaky ground. He was. Yeltsin was was on the, uh, you know, uh, in any case, if there had been is there were some minor agreements, but if the, the mentality in America is at that time, and I think it was pretty much Dick Cheney's idea. He was, I think, Secretary of Defense in uh, the elder Bush administration. Yeah. But we won the Cold War, so we ruled the world. Instead of we ended the Cold War Let's have a, what was Reagan's phrase, trust but verify. Right. Uh, have phased nuclear disarmament, not only of the two major powers, the U.S. and Russia, but also of other countries with uh, any kind of serious uh, nuclear arsenal. Yeah. Indian, Pakistan comes to mind. China comes to mind. Mm-hmm. Um and we blew it. We blew it completely, and now we're back in a situation where the genie is very much out of the bottle. And the reason I've gone on at some length about this is because the same thing applies here. You've got to think anything as powerful as you're proposing. No, don't do that. Put the scissors down. There's another answer. <laughs> yeah, I... I uh... The thing is, is sometimes things come out unintentional. So there's this story that this guy, uh, and he's always by himself. He's just like kind of this lonely guy. He's alienated from others. Right. And he spends all his time making this invention, and this invention is supposed to help people communicate with others. Right. Okay? It was just this miracle of modern science or something. You can, it's a MacGuffin. You can fill in the blank, right? Right. And uh, But the unintended effect, because of its inventor, um, people be- begin becoming alienated from uh, one another. Well, th- there's an even better one. It's, it's tiger, tiger, tiger. And basically, at the end of the book, right, the guy, <clears throat> he basically builds a bomb that can destroy all of humanity if anybody thinks a negative thought. So, so uh, what do you do? So, uh, we all think negative thoughts. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it was just like that uh, movie, uh, was it Tomorrowland? Right. Uh, where it, everybody's thoughts were amplifying each other's and they were making it become reality. Right. Um, because everybody was uh, in, in tension all on right. it. We're going to stop there. We're going to take a short break and then we'll be back. So here, enjoy some music. 
Okay, see you soon. I'll be back.
This is the Enigma Hour with me, Olaf Phillips, Captain Tiki. I got Captain Dave over here. Let it happen, Captain. <laughs> All right. So one of the things that I want to do as we enter the next phase of our fascinating conversation, there was some discussion about how fast a quantum computer actually is. And one of the things that I want to get to while we're talking to Alan is, you know, some elements of this in the Black Lodge. But before I do that, this is a description. So it says, quantum computers have shown that they can process certain tasks exponentially faster than classical computers. In late 2019, that's 2019, it's 2024, Google claimed that it had managed to solve a problem that would take 10,000 years for the world's fastest supercomputer within just 200 seconds using a quantum computer. So a little over three minutes. That's how fast it is. So that kind of, so when the question and the answer goes so fast, it becomes one. I'm going to put this on a personal level. So like I have my own battles inside of me. Okay. So if I have tools that can amplify and magnify my manifestation, uh, and uh, despite my best intentions, even on a day-to-day level, despite my best intentions, I've passed my battles on to others. Well, because magic, and Alan, correct me if I'm wrong, magic, the most elemental part of magic is intent that the will amplifies the intention. Is that correct? Yeah, I I think that that's one of the reasons that I, and I'm not the first, recommend like uh, 200 hours of psychotherapy before you start to do magic and a year of some kind of focused meditation before you start magic. Uh, People don't do that, but they should. I did. And yeah, I did too. I would, su- I would suggest that uh, 
Well, it's still uh, a process. The reasons for that are the number of things that can go wrong or that can overwhelm. Uh, and it uh, happens all the time in magical circles. So, yeah. So Intent is important, but remember the grail. The so, it is there in all of us. Yes. That's it. That's exactly right. That's That was the point I was trying to make. Yeah. Uh, so if you have the danger in these advanced technologies is that these unintended consequences because you're uh, passing your battles on. And, and one, of, one of the, Alan, I'd love to hear your opinion on this. One of the, the dangers is that you would think that the best way to do that, would to get that out of the system, would be to use an AI to actually write the code that you're going to generate or write the the magical process that you're going to follow. But under the rules of technomancy, your will and intent are clouding the AI. So the AI will still write something that would manifest your will and your intention. Yeah, if it's flawed because if you know of you. What? Your, uh, what did you say, Alan? If you know your absolute will. That's easier said than done. Yes, it is. Yes. Thank you. I mean, we're mostly creatures that are mixed. And hopefully, the more, I don't want to say altruistic, but the more well-meaning side of each of us here this evening is more manifest than the dark, cloudy, or somewhere in between side of us. But that side is there, and it can fool you. It can fool you into thinking it is, I mean, uh, how shall I put this? I hear from an ex all too often expounding all of, all of these things that are Forgive me, Looney Tunes. Only I think I'm disparaging the Warner Brothers uh, cartoons by saying that. Probably. Because they're just loony, let's put it that way. And I think that it's all done in good faith. It's just that people sometimes get, I'll use a Star Wars reference, they get seduced by the dark side of the force. And when they are, they don't think they're on the dark side. It's not like, Luke, I am your father. <laughs> oh, sure. Right. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's something that you have to guard against. And uh, as it's said, reputed, over the oracle at Delphi, know thyself. Why? Because if you don't know yourself, you don't know the right questions to ask. Right. And if you don't know yourself with a great deal of self-skepticism, you might ask the wrong question, get the wrong answer, and uh, repeat the cycle that has happened ever since uh, primordial Adam. So do you, do you think... I mean, I can't be the first person that brought this up. 
Probably not. Do you think that the Black Lodge utilizes it? I think the Black Lodge has uh, utilized some form of technomancy so long. Keep in mind that the discarnate portion of the Black Lodge, which is the non-manifest part of it, exists outside of space-time. Right. Sort of like quantum. You can think of them as uh, a quantum phenomena uh, right. winking in and out of existence as virtual beings, non-beings. doesn't matter. They've probably been using it since before the human race came into existence. Right. Um, there's some indication in the Gnostic literature of the uh, early centuries uh, CE, uh, notably uh, on the rule of the Archons, that the Archons is just another way of describing the Black Lodge, that... Uh, Actually, you could translate the title as hypostasis of the rulers because uh, the, the Gnostics of that period considered the dark powers to be in control of the material world. And there's something to be said for that, although you don't want to surrender the material world that easily. At least I do. And... Uh, it seems to me that uh, they've been actively using this sort of uh, technology that harnesses the fundamental forces in the universe, which is to say, at the quantum level, right. longer than we've even known how to walk upright. So, yeah, they use it. Fortunately, there is... Uh, the secret chiefs of the third order who are equally uh, outside of time and probably have been utilizing this for a long time. Well, yeah, they're, they're... Whether they would choose to vouchsafe it to you or whether the Black Lodge is whispering it in the ears of, oh, let's, let's say, Hamas or Vladimir Putin. Or the other, right. You know. uh, I don't know, but it could happen at any time. I hope I'm not giving them the idea. But, I mean, you know, that when it comes to the the Archons or the Black Lodge, the discarnate parts of the Black Lodge or the Seeker Chiefs or any discarnate entity, any magic that they do is essentially quantum. Correct. Yeah. That's, that's why I they... I mean, at, at their level, they are... Mm -hmm a manifestation of the quanta. You're right. Okay, they, they, they are as basic to the universe as it gets, at least insofar as we understand the nature of the universe, which is probably pretty minimal, considering if you go back a hundred years and look at what people thought at the beginning of the previous century, uh, that being the 20th century, is a lot of scientific and philosophical things that were thought to be true, which just were not 
my favorite because it changed in my lifetime. That is, when I was a teenager, they were still teaching that uh, uh, continental drift was quack science. Right. Well, it's not, uh, but that was what they were teaching in school when I was in school. Now they say, but of course we always knew right. that uh, mental slips and play, play tectonics, yeah. Yeah, play tectonics. Gosh, we must be close to the same age. I was trying to convince my, it's a class, it's science for liberal arts students, you know, and I brought up plate tectonics, you know, and the guy just like, uh, but he came around by the end of the semester. Well, of the, it was the uh, teacher I had to uh, argue my point with. It was real funny. Yeah, it was, uh, and that's the nature of a shifting, our reality shifts as our knowledge grows. Um, if you had said 30 years ago, I think the dinosaurs became extinct because an asteroid hit the Earth and caused the extinction or was a major factor in the extinction of the dinosaurs, that would have been considered a nut theory. It was a germ theory. There was a uh, uh, volcanic ash theory that was all kinds of theories out there. And then they discovered that it actually was a massive asteroid hit uh, in uh, uh, the Gulf of Mexico. At the end of the dinosaur era. Yeah. And that's after that, it's pretty abrupt. I mean, there may have been secondary causes like uh, changes in the climate, yeah. abrupt changes in the climate, uh, probably something that heavy hitting, I think it was in the Gulf of Mexico. It was. Uh, which set off uh, fires and volcanoes well, all over the world, yeah. which create a sort of poisonous atmosphere. Maybe nuclear a, winter. Nuclear uh, winter for a few years. Yeah, I was curious. We were talking about the same sort of thing because uh, here on Table Mountain, when the miners were digging, they found relics and uh, artifacts from... Uh, um, a civilization people that shouldn't have been there at that right. level. And especially back when they were discovered in the 1850s, right? They believed life began 6,000 years previous, and that was it. Uh, and now they're starting to find... And so, uh, Josiah Whitney, who at Mount Whitney is, is named after, he was our first state geologist, and he proposed that man had been here in California for a million years, you know, and they right. laughed at him. And now they're starting to find uh, um, the Mastodon site, right. uh, remains and relics that are 130,000 uh, years old, you know, which way, uh, so our understanding, and then our reality actually shifts, um, our shifting around because our understanding deepens. Um, yeah, just right now, one of the things that has been considered mythic, going all the way back to the conquistadors in South America, looking for the, quote, mythical cities of gold, unquote, all the way up to, uh, was it Colonel Fawcett, who yeah, the disappeared in the city jungle, of yeah. El Dorado, Percy Fawcett. What, it was considered to be 
there ain't no such thing. There are tribal peoples in the Amazonian jungle, but they are comparatively primitive, especially if you consider the uh, the Inca and the pre-Inca civilizations on the west coast of South America. Well, just in the past few years, That's right. they have found substantial evidence of a literally prehistoric civilization, more or less along the banks of the Amazon and tributary rivers in South America. That was a continuous civilization. Apparently some monk in the 1600s, 1700s, sailed uh, the dangerous parts of the Amazon, which is most of it, and said, I see uh, evidence of huge cities. And he was widely ridiculed at the time that this was a Baron Munchausen uh, fable, because clearly no such civilization existed in the interior of the uh, Amazonian jungle. And, and now because of deforestation and uh, LIDAR uh, scannings, they're finding remains of ancient civilizations. And, and they were so advanced that they, because the soil and those rainforests are so skimpy, uh, they right. developed their own super soil that just Terra amazed Prita. scientists. Yeah, Terra Preta, the most uh, of the, the dirt in the Amazon. And they had this extensive trading systems mm -hmm. and uh, industries where they had have fish farms and yeah, just amazing but, stuff. But I, I feel I feel like you know te again technomancy in the magic world is not very popular. You know. No. No. Because you have the people that are drawn to magic tend to be uh, humanities types. Right. Even a certain kind of humanities type. Right. I, I won't say geeks, but I just did. <laughs> yeah. uh, and therefore... Guilty as charged. And therefore generally have an aversion technology. You find the opposite in ufology. Right. The predominant strain are people who started out uh, being NASA fans or uh, science fiction. Ooh, there's that word again. Geeks. Right. And they are resistant to anything that suggests the paranormal. Uh, Fui on both of them, I'd say. <laughs> Yeah. And fully on them, because clearly there is a need to acknowledge the magical and technological overlap one with the other. Magic is very technically oriented if you're a serious magician. Everything is pretty meticulous or it doesn't work. I mean, it can be as simple as uh, follow the sync. And as complex as the Abramelin ritual would take, which takes the better part of a year to do, with no promised results, although once in a while some very enterprising magician achieves the knowledge and conversation of the holy guardian angel, i.e., themselves, their higher self. So, of course, in magical circles, there is 
either an ignorance of or uh, perhaps an aversion to technology. Essentially, magical movements, the one at the end of the 19th century, the one that is now passing into history that started as part of the uh, primitivist, nativist thing in the 1960s and 70s, um, it was a spinoff of that, is anti-technology. Well, try to live without it. And right. See, see if that works real well for you. Uh, and let me know, because I have a feeling I won't be hearing from you. Uh, if you catch a cold, you'll probably die. It's not a good idea. Well, and, and you know, I think part of the reason <clears throat> that we get such good results now out of the secret cipher is because of the the technological backup of it. It's able to process these things faster, you know, and it started with the lexicon on an 8088, you know, 286. Now, you know, it, it runs on the web and, you know, the power is exponentially faster. So I think it... Of course, and easier too. I mean, yes, very it easy. makes it something that's accessible in a way that manually doing deciphering uh, self-discourages. In other words, if I gave a talk, this is not entirely theoretical, and say, okay, I want you folks to spread the word if you know of a case of uh, a close encounter that involved beings with strange names who come from planets that you don't recognize. Dave, you don't send count. Send it to me, and they, I get a hundred. I get a hundred Back in the days of only manually doing the cipher, right. I probably would have analyzed ten, maybe, because that would have taken a month or two. I mean, it, it, we were mentioning the... Uh, the computer version of the I Ching. Well, the traditional version is to use the Yarrow stocks. And it's a very complex process to get a single reading. Uh, won't take that long with a real expert who does pretty much nothing else. But it will take an hour, maybe two hours, for one hexagram to be generated. And, of course, in the computer version, which uses the same principle, which is theoretical randomness. Right. Uh, quantum randomness. Right. Um, the, although imperfect on an analog computer, it's as accurate, I would say, as the arrow stocks, if less mystical, but yields very, very good results. So, yes, it was a breakthrough and it happened in upstate New York with an exceedingly ingenious person at that time named Tim Coutte, who was too good for this world and who left it way, way too early. But I mean, it's, I, I don't know, but I, I think it's really something to ponder. Oh yeah, for sure. And it's important. I mean, we work with it, not exclusively, at least I don't do it exclusively. Right. But uh, I've 
never had a problem with technology, period. And I've never had a problem with spooky stuff, period. So putting them together is natural to me. And it's, I think, to a lot of magically oriented uh, humanities people, it's uh, outside of their range. It's funny, they're both the same to me. (laughs) Technology is pretty spooky. (laughs) Yeah, well, it is pretty spooky when you stop and think about it. But it is embedded in in the culture, and I tend to embrace the culture. Witness, we're talking right now, across 3,000 miles. In real time. In real time, almost, within a millisecond. So actually, St. Petersburg first, and they, you know, <laughs> and then they relay it. Write it down, use the cipher to figure out what we're really saying. Right. I wonder what the cipher says about quantum computing. Dave, you had a question. I'm going I'm to see if I can no, figure that no, out. No, I, I didn't have a question. I just had a comment. It was like, uh, it's a new and improved. Uh, I just, it reminded me of, the 50s culture when everybody had the money to, and everybody had these, I'll marry you, honey, and I'll buy, uh, and I, I'll buy you an appliance of your choice. You know, the appliances to make life easier and faster and better. And it's just the use of tools. Um, Labor-saving devices. Labor-saving devices, that's right. <laughs> So the housewife could look clean and fresh. And they say, uh, nothing but the best for my family. <laughs> just when it got really easy, there's nobody in the kitchen. <laughs> okay, Trite. So I, I put quantum computing into the cipher. So I get a king thou canst not hurt, all rituals, all ordeals, all words and signs, am all pleasure and purple, and the strength, force, and their position to and understandeth, then saith, are done, but there is, are not of me, let a seer be, are not pity, not the, are the ordeals in one, be half known and half concealed, be kings forever. So be it. It's an endorsement. It's an endorsement. At and least, if but you but can work that into a being a paragraph, <coughs> using only the phrases as generated, right. I think you'll find that it's coherent as well oh, yes. as no static at well, all. And, and that's, Michael McClure couldn't have done better. Though Alan, Alan told me once, I'm one of the few people that can get it to respond coherently, that most times it's, it's utterly incoherent and very symbolic, but for whatever reason... When I do it, I get coherent responses. Yeah, okay, Black Rose of Thunder, Fleck Boot, Mercury Vapor. I can make it work. No, but seriously, I I tend to get pretty good. But this is interesting. It's it's an endorsement, but it's think very carefully about what you want to do with it. Of course. Yeah. And and this is this is Dave, this is technomancy right here. Okay. And you need to look up, but you may know where the I mean I know where uh 
the first computer programs that simulated intelligence came from. Because I, <laughs> I used to talk to it, and it would talk to me. Right. I psychiatrist, yes. But uh, what was his name? White Spurb? Anyway, he was stressed when he found that some of his students were actually using it as a psychiatrist. And it was primitive by, you know, uh, today's AI chatbot standard, but it was still uh, quite eerie. It would take, uh, you'd say, I came today to talk to you because I'm feeling blue. And it would say, uh, Eliza was the name of the program. Say, so is it because you're feeling blue today that you came to me? And it would go on like that. It would feed off what you say right. and back to it, but have a few things that were just thrown in, like, are you in touch with your feelings today? Or, you know, things that make it what it's meant to emulate, which is a Rogerian therapist. And Rogerian therapy, they don't want to inject their own opinions at all. So they basically are just your sounding board and the feedback, which probably was a little embarrassing to the Rogerian therapists that they could be replaced by a computer program fit on two kilobytes. Of yeah. So that's that's very interesting. Uh, I, I think uh, we'll up your dosage. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, they never said that. <laughs> well, you know what's interesting though is that back in the punch card days, they thought computers, you know, these punch card based computers, really could be psychoanalysts, and a a whole fleet of eminent psychologists, psychiatrists, and psychoanalysts plugged in a bunch of patient data using punch cards and they actually got out the right response that it, it correctly diagnosed these patients and they thought but, oh uh, what was the suggested treatment modality well even even the su- suggested treatment as primitive as, as it was you know complied with their own thoughts the problem came when they put in they needed a control because it was a scientific experiment. So they thought, we're going to put on our own personality profiles as controls because we're psychiatrists, psychoanalysts, and psychotherapists. And it should correctly diagnose us as being relatively normal or, you know, because we understand this, you know, we're well-adjusted people, whatever. It actually came back that, that they were all psychotic. And the more people they put in that were just didn't have diagnosed problems, the more people that were coming back with sociopathic tendencies. Well, those are the people that pursue that field. You know, I spent many years on the back ward, and uh, there was this one guy, Nolan Parnham, he goes, you ain't crazy when you get here, you get crazy when you leave. (laughs) And uh, how do you tell the difference between a staff and a patient? Who has the keys? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, in my experience, and let's see, the first time I saw a shrink, actually for couples therapy, it was in 1973, so, and 
not the last, it's the first. I never met a uh, psychiatrist who wasn't, or psychologist, even more so, who wasn't, uh, who didn't fit the profile that you just mentioned. I'm not going to say that they're psychotic, but no. I knew one that was a psychotic, and he wound up blowing his brains out. In fact, my regular doctor, for a year after that, said, okay, I'll, I'll fill all your prescriptions, because he had sent me to this guy. And actually, I thought he was okay. I even sent my son Alex to this guy. He was a gun nut, got in a shootout with the cops, um, and wound up killing himself uh, in a most unpsychiatric way. No, I mean, I've, you know, I... I've been in, been to therapy. I've, I've dealt with therapists and psychiatrists and I, you know, personally I've, I've found them to be very beneficial to the situations in which I saw them. But it, uh, it was interesting. That I, that I just was, was going to say, I'm not saying that they're not no. useful. I'm saying that when you delve into yes. the mind, it's a dark uh, and strange place. Uh, quote, if you peer into the abyss, Beware that the abyss does not peer back at you. I'm mangling it, but that's what he said. No, what, in what dark places help propel you to great light and height? No, and it's true. really true. Um, so a lot of times you are motivated because you're in that dark place. Think of yeah. all the famous writers and philosophers and stuff that were deeply troubled and flawed people. Well, I mean, we're all innately flawed. The, the, the thing that you have to worry about, though, is uh, you might think it's the greatest labor-saving device, but somehow, sometimes your flaws get into that act, right. and um, there's unintended consequences. And my feeling is you use any tool that's at your disposal in order for you to do the work. Right. And it doesn't matter what it is. It doesn't matter if it's spooky or techy. Whatever tools are available that you know how to use to enhance what you're doing, you should be able to use. But Agreed. it heightens the consequences of yes. your actions. So then whatever is flawed is really going to show. Yeah. <laughs> and myself, I'm... I'm still working on it, man. I'm still getting there. I think we all are. Uh, the best that I could do, because I knew a lot of times uh, that uh, I was coming from the same place, the same uh, that I was trying to treat. Uh, sure. I'm still uh, like and, and we're common cause here. And, and you're bringing in fundamentally whether you do ceremonial magic, technomancy. Wicca, whatever you're doing, you always bring that flaw into the process, always. So you get yourself as clear as you can, but at the That's same you time, you create environments so people to create healing, I guess. Our, right. in, in working in the hospitals, that's what we would do is create environments to create healing. It was that same thing as those Greek spas that everybody used to go to the first right. hospitals sing them nice music and sure. uh put put in the fish tanks <laughs> well 
that that's actually pretty much the show. <laughs> Gosh, man, I could. Uh, we need to do this again because we just scratched and surfaced. You know, uh, Alan, what you're so good at is to help stimulate conversation, bring up topics, and then invite others to come along. And I really appreciate that. I appreciate that. And well, thank you. That is what I try to do, which is our book, <laughs> which. My, my co-author is a strange person who's also a radio personality as well as an author. Yes. That would be uh, Olaf Phillips. I believe that's a Scandinavian name. So yes, he's, he's probably one of the Aryan people there. No. But I'm not. I'm uh, not and, <laughs> I'm Swedish. Uh, well, it must be uh, a uh, this uh, I and thou thing where... Uh, you guys trigger one another, you know? We do. We actually, we always have. We get on the phone, and it'll be book, two, three hours. Anyway, the book is called Secrets of the Real Black Lodge Revealed, and it is an antiseptic to the influences of the dark side. Now, where, so, can, where can people get that? Any of the online booksellers. Amazon most easily, but Barnes & Noble... And maybe books a million. Of, yeah, eBay. So can I get my Kindle version? Yes. Okay. A, yeah, it's the only <laughs> book of mine that has a Kindle version. So. I'm gonna work on that. <laughs> okay, After so, the quantum computing. I'm okay. Work so what's on the that. name of the book again? We actually have people of Eastern European countries. We There's do. A, uh, uh, we get requests for. Hey, do you have a bumper sticker? And this guy's from something to stand. <laughs> and uh, so somewhere over there in Eastern Europe, there's a car driving around with a KAD bumper sticker. So what's the name of that book again? Secrets of the Real Black Lodge Reveal. And it's published by? because Alan Greenfield and Olaf Phillips, the Viking. Okay. <laughs> so if you think this the is Jewish intro, Vikings, Kirk Douglas and Bernard Schwartz from Brooklyn. I mean Tony Curtis. Excuse me, I used his actual name. Yes, Dave. <laughs> All right. Well, you've been listening to another thrilling two hours of the Enigma Hour. Where we explore life's little mysteries. Hey, Alan, thanks again for coming on. Yes, thank you. We want to have you back. Oh, well, you know, as the hooker on the street corner says, I'm available. So he would, uh, what do they call when you add a third co-host? Oh, you know, Alan and I have talked about that for years, actually. It's a panel. It's, it's a panel. Like... We, You know, you know I'm going to throw in we're trying to end the show, but I'm going to throw an idea out there. I think at least once a month, we should have a panel with Alan. Yeah. At least once a month, you know, maybe the last, the last Thursday of the month we get Alan on because this conversation <laughs> to my knowledge has never taken place. And you know, we actually have uh, two more uh, mics. We can, Oh no, he's in Atlanta. It's, <laughs> it'd be a bit of a, a bit of a trip for No, Atlanta. but I mean, well, you can fly me out, but I only fly first class. <laughs> Yeah, whatever. The only way to fly. Uh, you'll fly however you're given a seat. 
And only Delta because I'm well, an Atlanta person. You, you can only fly Delta and Allegiant. They're the only two that go. You aren't worried about the doors flying off, huh? If it, you know, I'll tell uh, you. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's for off air. <laughs> I'll tell oh, you. Okay. There's a saying. There used to be a saying called, if it ain't Bowen, I ain't going. <laughs> go from there. <laughs> it's, you know, when the door popped off, I thought, you know, this is the first time I've ever thought to myself, you know, Airbus isn't so bad. <laughs> anyway, thanks again, Alan. And let's, let's talk about doing a, a panel once a month. Well, let's do a preliminary first to yes. see if people stay interested. Yes. Because my repertoire is not endless. Believe no. it or mm. not. Whoops. Sorry. <laughs> well, then we can reach the outer limits. Oh, that's the Twilight Zone. That's the Twilight Zone, Alan. All right, guys. Well, thanks again for listening. And uh, buy my book. Buy his book. That's my book, too. Your book. <laughs> All right. Good night. <laughs>